live from the internet, it's the Narrative After Show. Bringing you the entire week in review. Now, please welcome tonight's guests and your host, Seth Shalev. The brand new opening, Matt Fauza. Thanks very much for that. And hello to Mike Pesha uh, of the Just Podcast. Everyone's got to download and subscribe to your podcast. Thank you very much for joining us for the first time here. Now, Sherry, I'm wondering if you can hear us properly because it doesn't look to me like you can. Just log off and log on again if you can, and we'll, we'll figure that out. In the meantime, I'll get to talk to Mike about the triumphant return. And people might not know this, but you were the, you're like the king of all podcasts before anybody else. You were the guy who did the live, not the live, but the daily podcast more than any, it was like seven years ago, eight years ago. It was a long time yeah, ago. 20, 2014. We're the first news and analysis podcast. So there are podcasts that were repurposed radio shows mm-hmm. that predate me. And there are podcasts that predate me, but in terms of daily talk about the news every day, uh, I don't know if you want to say I invented that. The idea was out there. I was the first to latch onto it. Well, you, I think you, you get to claim you invented it because you, okay. you made the first one. Um, so you did that with Slate and it was phenomenally successful. I mean, you know, it was a place to go in, in podcasts if you wanted to, uh, to talk about daily events. And that lasted for a good long period of time until it didn't, um, until there was a That's bit right. of a scandal, right? Um, do you want to tell people about what happened there briefly and then we'll... Sure. The brief story, and maybe this will touch on some of the things we talk about today, is that uh, there was a Slack conversation. I'm sure you know, Zev, but maybe some of your viewers uh, aren't that familiar. Slack is an internet kind of email all at once group portal. But the dynamics of Slack are sometimes such that some of the worst parts of the internet play out within a company. So there was a, a channel in Slack. You could have channels about media news. And there was a discussion about Donald McNeil, the New York Times reporter who was disciplined. And there was a uh, subsequent kerfuffle over what people with Inside the Times said was the lack of sufficient discipline for him saying a slur when he was on official Times business in a conversation mm. with a uh, teenager. He, went, he didn't, it, In terms of the use mentioned distinction, which is something we talk about with slurs, he wasn't wielding the word but he used it to get clarification. And most of the people in the channel on Slate felt that the man should be fired. And I thought not necessarily. I got into perhaps subtleties. (laughs) Maybe they weren't too subtle. Maybe they were a blunderbuss to some others. And it was just, and, and of course, I never used the word. I never even used euphemisms about the word. I talked about it in print, like I'm talking about it now. But it was uh, a raw topic for some, and it was one of those instances where uh, perhaps I was thinking that the audience was taking it one way and the audience was more offended than I could ever known. Anyway, what resulted was a blow up, an investigation. I was you know, cleared and found to have violated no policies during the investigation. But there Slate and I are saying, are we going to have this go forward? And I think we both kind of mutually thought that it would be better were I to go independent. And that's why the gist is back after almost a year off with season two. Season <laughs> one was the first 1,400 episodes. Season two is what we're doing now. It's the same exact show. 1,400 episodes. Wow. it's a lot. It's a hell of a record. So we're thrilled you're back because, you know, the internet needs people like you because you are really a, a centrist. I mean, you're sort of your, you don't find yourself on any particular side of the political debate. You're you're sort of really a centrist and you like to talk about facts just like we do here on narrative. Yeah. So tell people why the show is so good. I think centrist is a very unexciting label. It's sort it of is. a label that it, is. it allows other, it just is indicating, oh, we're the mean of whatever the extremes are. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, at least for me, I have the positions I have. They would probably be labeled center left in the American political system. But if things shift around me, I'll certainly take into account new facts and perhaps recalibrate if there's some new evidence, but you know, I'm going to be consistent, which is, I do think I am moderate by temperament and most of the political um, solutions that I favor would fall somewhere within like the moderate wing of the democratic party. But basically what I 
very much believe in is discourse and talking it out. And my show is not about me telling you what I think. It's about hearing from listeners and hearing from the guests and trying to shape the opinion given the best practices of, uh, of discourse and debate. Do you think the same thing would have happened today? Do you think times have already shifted so much that you would, if the same thing happened today, having now endured what we did with Donald Trump, you know, even if it's just been a year, really, um, do you think that there would be as much of a scandal or do you think it would have been thought of as just too minor to even bother with because there's so much else to deal with right now? There are a lot of variables that went into it, some very specific to, you know, my situation, Slate's situation. Yeah, I mean, I think if we had to, if we had to have a DEFCON in terms of the the tetchiness around um, speech that discomforts some people, maybe we're, you know, no longer at DEFCON 1. That's the worst, right? Maybe we're at DEFCON 2 now, but I can't quite put my finger out on it. Mm. I do think the thing that obtains, the thing that is still going on is, I think there's something about Slack, which even if you're not on Slack, you're on Twitter, there's something about separation and just not being within the actual physical vicinity of, say, people you work with, who you might disagree with, that lends itself to conflagrations. I was reading a book by Amanda Ripley, who wrote a book called High Conflict. It's fantastic. And she talks about these daily interactions, like in a kitchen, in the office, uh, chit-chat, maybe something substantive. I like that thing you did. I like that piece you wrote, that interview you gave. She calls them mini inoculations. And so we don't spin off into high conflict if these people are more real and less abstractions right. and less just a paragraph in a Slack channel. Same would be true for Twitter. I mean, that's really the, you know, people would not be as brave in the real world as they are on Twitter. Sherry, you're back, I believe. Yes, off and on. You're kind of going in and out. I'm having a few problems on my end. I apologize. It's okay. It happens. It's good to see you. How are you today? Good to see you. I'm doing well. I'm hearing part of your conversation. By the way, I'm one of those people who I would probably say the same thing to people to their faces I do on Twitter, but that's why I get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would. I'm too. I'm terrible at not. Uh, but then I'm a little more cautious on Twitter these days than I used to be. I really, you know, I think oh, the whole thing is so inflamed. It's not so much that. It's about, it's about picking up on things like micro expressions. It's about mm -hmm. the ability to say things rapidly and really understand what the person says. So even if you stick by your guns, maybe we'll have a conversation where we disagree. I think if that conversation were to play out in written form, there'd be more disagreement. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. So we've got lots of news to talk about because I can't believe the news cycle these days. I mean, we have been through so much news in just a few days and it's hard to even recap it all. But I think the biggest news of the week has got to be the decision. I just by, lost you. Uh oh, you just lost us completely. That's so unusual. I can't hear. Oh, no. All right. I'm going to ask Mike another question and then I'll be right okay. back with you, Sherry. Let's talk a little bit about the big story of the week, the story of Justice Breyer announcing his retirement. That's a, a huge thing. Obviously, the, the court is going to change direction. But the biggest story out of that is the reaction to President Biden's decision to make sure that the next justice will be a black woman. There seems to be a lot of outrage on the right about this being sort of a, you know, a pandering to the far left, which of course it isn't. It's just a slight adjustment back to, to maybe something more even. So what do you think of that? What do you think of that whole process and the GOP's response to that? Most of the people doing the objecting would not favor whatever candidate that Joe Biden picked. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, a bit of political opportunism. So what I'm going to do is do a thought experiment where I grapple with what might be the best phrasing of that argument. So mm -hmm. we've seen a few examples of the worst phrasing, but the best phrasing is something like, okay, the president says that what he's going to do first and foremost is pick the most qualified candidate for the job. And also he says that candidate is going to be a black woman. Um, perhaps a critic could say something like, well, he's immediately casting out, eschewing 93% of the population in making his choice that he says is the best candidate. In terms of hiring practices for an extremely important job that could have tenure of 50 or so years, depending on the human lifespan, don't tell me that it's the best person for the job. Just be honest and say, I'm going to pick the best person out of, you know, a field of that could have qualified people, but also definitely doesn't have all the qualified people in it. You're not looking at all the well-qualified people. That doesn't say anything about, that's not, not actually my opinion, that doesn't say anything about 
the necessity of Joe Biden keeping his political promise, which is really important, and the message and reality of having a black woman on the court, which would be a salutable thing. But I think that if that were the counter argument and it were enjoined in good faith, maybe we could have a discussion about the merits of that. So you don't think the president is being honest? I think the president is like a politician trying to say, I'm absolutely sticking to my promises, which is a good thing. And also, this is going to be the best qualified person for the job. And you're right to see perhaps a little bit of tension. Now, the way this gets phrased, I saw one critic who was admonished by his new employer, Georgetown Law School, saying, I think Sri Srinivasan should be the uh, candidate, uh, not a lesser candidate. That's a horrible way to put it. You know, mm-hmm. not necessarily is this a lesser candidate. And if you look at the history of, say, affirmative action and uh, just just initiatives to diversify higher education, There is always the suspicion, many black people who are in Ivy League schools or places that want diversification will tell you, you know, I'm always there's always the suspicion that I'm just a diversity candidate. Stephen Carter of Yale wrote Mm. um, many things about this, about how it follows him. And I don't know how exactly to solve that, except to say that, you know, if we were all to default a little bit for a bit more graciousness and to elevate the idea that we actually, you know, what is the statistic? I think it's 116 justices in the history of the Supreme Court, and 109 of them have been white men. You know, let's do something about that. So I think that that's a way to navigate through the Republican criticism of the pick. I think the thing is about, you know, this topic and many other topics, and hopefully, Sherry, you can now hear us, uh, is the idea that there's so much race in this next election, despite the fact that we're all trying to desperately avoid it. This is going to be yet another race elections because the GOP has sort of put us there. We're back in a, you know, we're back talking about, uh, you know, as many race issues as we can possibly get to, especially when it comes to schools. And so, you know, Sherry, I'm interested in your take on this as a former GOP strategist. Is this just another opportunity for the GOP to turn this next election into race? We're talking about the SCOTUS appointment. Well, I think they're going to try to anyway. What I see is them stumbling around. They know they have to oppose this nominee because that's what they do. And they're having a difficult time doing so. There's just no argument against it. First of all, this doesn't change the makeup of the court in terms of ideology. Uh, this is a basically a, a left, uh, you know, more of a progressive seat. And so it w- should remain so. Uh, but I see people struggling. My disappointment is in white, never Trump men, you know, people like Bill Kristol, who are saying things like, you have to pick the best person. First of all, they've never picked the best person. They <laughs> pick among the best people. And as we saw with Brett Kavanaugh, that certainly didn't work. And Amy Comey Bear, that didn't work. They picked them for other reasons. So for Joe Biden, I think it was very much on terra firma in the campaign and to keep his promise to say, it's time to have a black woman on the court, because there are plenty of qualified black women who have been over overlooked. I mean, we went over 200 years where white men picked the among the best of the most qualified other white men. And now we have all these guys getting their panties in a bunch because we have a white man picking among the most qualified black women. And I can't wait to see what happens when one day, hopefully, we have, say, a black woman in the White House who's in a position to decide uh, among the most qualified of black or white men or women and see how these guys are. I, it's just amazing to me how sensitive everybody is about this. Uh, they're saying, well, they're doing this on race. No, they're not. The nominee will be a very qualified person among the most qualified in the country. And it's time for a black woman. And so this narrative that's out there uh, as if Joe Biden is going to find just any old black woman and put her in there and she's not going to be qualified is offensive it's wrong and it's going to backfire. So in that regard, depending how far uh, Republicans go with this, I think it's going to backfire big time. Don't forget, a lot of people voted for Joe Biden because he said he was going to put a black woman on the court because we know it's time because he put Kamala Harris uh, as his vice president. And we knew that he was probably going to pick a woman no matter what. Uh, So this is why he became president. We know that uh, Trump tried to cheat and did cheat. And uh, just could not overcome this blue wave. And it was because Joe Biden had been the vice president to a young black man. And, you know, with his long career, Joe Biden was the I'm on a a roll here, but he was the youngest, a very young senator uh, elected and finally was sworn in right under the wire in terms of age. He's been around and seen it all. So for him to be a part of building 
this change in our history, an old white guy doing what nobody thinks old white guys should do. He's the one doing it. Vice yeah. president to our first black president, chose our first woman, woman of color, vice president. And now he's going to put the first black woman on the court. If this yeah, is so offensive to people, then too bad, because this is what's happening. And this is why he's president. Absolutely. And it's, you know, as you say, the most courageous president, I think. And I just lost sound. (laughs) Oh, no. That was so terrific. I hope you you get your sound back. You know, it's really amazing that you raised that because he also did the same for the LGBT community. I don't think we would have had as much of a move towards gay marriage either if it wasn't for Joe Biden pushing the Biden administration there. Um, Mike, do you have a take on, on what she's saying then, what Sherry's talking about? Yeah, I expect the GOP to blow it up. William Crystal. Um, notwithstanding, he's, you know, a never Trump or a guy who's with the bulwark. My election, my political analysis is a Joe Biden had to do it. He should do it. He made the promise to Jim Clyburn when he was in South Carolina. I am going to pick a black woman. You stick by your promises. He needed South Carolina. He got the votes of most of the black population of South Carolina, including the black woman population, black women were an absolutely essential demographic for him to get elected. And Sherry's point is the best point, And it's the rebuttal to Crystal, which is that he is not going to pick an unqualified candidate. When we see Judge Kruger or Judge Brown become Justice Kruger or Brown or if it's someone else, their credentials are going to bowl us over. And I bet she's going to be the kind of jurist that every American could be proud of, except the people who would never vote for a Democratic nominee in the first place. Um, you know, I've heard in amongst many people's discussing this, that the appointment of a black justice is more important to the black community than the appointment of a black vice president. It's a lifetime appointment. The issue of justice is so important in the black community. And for those two reasons alone, this is one of the most important and significant events in black history in America. Yeah, it's uh, obviously just right there in the title. The vice president is Mm. secondary, a secondary figure within the administration, though very important. Whereas a justice can distinguish themselves throughout administrations, throughout history. I mean, what Thurgood Marshall did on the court one of the great justices and his pre-judicial, his pre-Supreme Court career was also one of the great ones. So yeah, in terms of practical terms, impact on society, lasting impact could be the, this could represent the most important African-American ever to hold office in the United States, but for Barack Obama. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be an absolutely important decision. And uh, let me ask you if you think that the makeup of the court is going to change very dramatically. I don't think that's really the issue. I think people are are expecting it to stay pretty similar, but just the appearance of having a black woman there is going to be so powerful. I think the, I mean, I think it will be inspiring, but I don't think that the decisions will change. And I think that it is a pretty solid 6-3 conservative or conservative appointed and conservative ideological court. And occasionally Robert may defect from the sixth side of things, but unless he drags Gorsuch, which did happen in an LGBT case, uh, actually a trans case, and or maybe he could drag Kavanaugh over to him, his side, you'll get a surprising decision. You know, but mostly, no matter who is appointed, it's not going to change the direction of the court, which we can say is not actually aligned with the direction of America. The majority of the Republicans of the court were appointed by Republicans who did not win the popular vote. And I understand that's the electoral college system. But when the uh, benefits and the appointments flow down from that system with its flaws, it does it does undermine the legitimacy of the court. Absolutely. Well, but I do think it will make a difference. I think there's going to be a lot of issues around race and it's particularly about the elections that are going to be adjudicated by this next court and having a black woman there actually deciding, helping decide these race issues is going to be remarkable. I mean, just even though it's just one voice on that committee, it's still going to be an important and unique voice that we've never, ever had in the Supreme Court, Sherry. That's a, a big deal. I think that'll be very important. And I think that um, the unity of some of the other women uh, on the court, uh, the left-leaning women will matter. Uh, They won't be these one-offs or, you know, sort of these enigmas. It'll be more of a 
regular type of thing that we're used to seeing. Uh, so it's symbolically, it's important. I think it will be important in the decisions that are made, but psychologically for this nation, it's extremely important, particularly uh, with the horrendous, most recent choices that have been placed on the court and what we went through with Brett Kavanaugh. I think psychologically, we need this yeah, a lot. I, I think so. It'll be a huge victory. Is there a possibility that we're not going to let, that the uh, that these mansion and cinema are not going to vote in favor of whatever justice is nominated. And maybe the Republicans will decide that they don't want to either for whatever reasons. Could we be in a situation where we're not able to actually get the nominee through? Well, I'd have to think about why they wouldn't vote for this nominee. Again, it's not a swing seat. They don't really gain anything by being contrarians on this. So my guess is I can't imagine that it would be controversial. I think that uh, voting against the first black woman who would be on the court would carry more negatives for them than positives. You know, I think yeah. that mansion and, and cinema are about the money. I don't right. think they're about this. Um, right. So they're getting paid. Let's say they're, let's say they're getting, this, but, uh, let's say they're getting know, paid think, enough money to do it. Let's say there's enough cash coming in from those GOP, um, you know, businessmen that we exposed this week on narrative. Let's say there's enough of those dollars coming towards mansion and cinema that they decide that, you know, just to oppose Biden, they'll obstruct that. Um, and the Republicans could do the same thing. Yeah. Well, to stop the agenda, I, they, I guess. I think this carries more baggage for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. This is different than, than BBB. This is something that people of West Virginia might actually understand. You know, West Virginia is a very different state. I think Manchin's reasons for doing what he does is very different than that chick from Arizona. I know I'm going to get flack for calling her a chick, but you know, I just think she's horrible. <laughs> but uh, I think they'll make some noises, um, but I find it hard to believe that they would go so far as to vote against the nominee unless they can really drum up reasons. I mean, we already are seeing Republicans struggling and tripping all over themselves, trying to find something wrong with the very idea that uh, Joe Biden said he would nominate a black woman. And he's doing that. I mean, Ronald Reagan pledged to nominate a woman and he did that. And we didn't see anybody getting that upset. You know, every time these people step out there and try to oppose the very idea of this before there's even a person named, I think they harm themselves. As a longtime former Republican strategist, I would say, let them keep doing it. Although I've, <laughs> you know, they, I, just, I thought that would be the case with the voters' rights bill. And, you know, they voted against that too, at least the, uh, you know, the change of the rules to allow the, the debate to go on. But they voted against voters' rights. It's the same kind of thing. You don't expect people in their right mind to be doing this kind of stuff, but they do. And Mike, I think that's a but real they test. They're not, they're not going to get a right wing judge. So, I mean, what's their end game on this? That's just the to thing. obstruct. It's just to obstruct. To opposition to look yeah. like racist, mm-hmm. sexist. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing they the, get out of this. Do you mean the Republicans or Mansion and Cinema? I think the, the Republicans are obstructing anyhow. They're doing it, obstructing yeah. anything. And I think that Mansion and Cinema are getting paid. Honestly, I think that's what's going on. They're on they're getting a lot of money, millions of dollars. It's been proven uh, from these Republican businessmen to just vote whatever way the Republican businessmen are telling them to vote. You know, if that means obstructing Biden on the nominee, they'll do it. I disagree with that assessment. First of all, I think it's more likely that there will be a few Republican votes in favor of the nominee mm-hmm. than Mansion and Cinema will defect. You guys didn't say predict that Mansion and Cinema would defect. But especially if uh, she's extremely well qualified and comes, they're, they're of course going to be, hey, you wrote this thing in college and it has a phrase that you wouldn't have used now. But if she comes, if she acquits herself well in the committee, I could see a Murkowski or a Romney or maybe a few, a few Republicans for whatever reason, one that don't face primary challenges from the right voting for her. Let's just table for a second the uh, explanation of the motivations of Manchin and Cinema. If you look at their records on judicial nominees. They're, you know, a Democratic dream. Joe Manchin has given the Democrats all the votes they've ever needed on Democratic court nominees. And Kristen Sinema, even though she literally was the most conservative vote in Congress when she was in the House of Representatives, and as because she wasn't a senator, she didn't get to vote on these justices, there's no indication that she wants conservative justices or anything other than liberal, liberal justices. I think, in fact, they both, oh, and let's also factually say they weren't against 
I don't know. This is maybe giving them too much of the benefit of the doubt. They weren't against the voting rights bill. They were against changing the filibuster to get the voting rights bill, which, you know, you might think is a distinction without a difference. But they would say, no, the filibuster is important. It's sacrosanct. And, and for a one time yeah. for a one time thing, it wasn't even going to be a, a forever. They were going to just uh, let the do they weren't even going to change it. They're going to let the rules uh, play out and they're going to have an open debate. And they were opposed to that. That seems ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, so they both, you know, screwed their attention to the sticking point yeah. of the filibuster. But I, I think that Joe Manchin is pretty much the best that Democrats could ever hope for from West Virginia. It's almost like a stolen seat. And I think that cinema is pursuing a rational reelection strategy in the state of Arizona, which is probably more red than blue the last couple of Senate elections notwithstanding. It might I don't be know one about that. that I, I'm going to push you. back on that. You've got 8% approval rating for her right now in Arizona. I mean, it's it's really low. And, uh, you know, she's got some time, but I don't know if she even thinks she's going to go for re-election. Plus, you've got a changing demographic in Arizona where you've got 140,000 new Latino voters coming of age in just the next few years are going to be voting in that election. If she is honestly trying to play for a re-election, I'm not sure she's doing it based on any real knowledge of the demographic shifts in that state. Well, the demographics aren't That's a good observation. necessarily. And also she knows that she won because she convinced the same voters who voted for Joe Biden, that she convinced them that she'd be, you know, a safe, appropriate, maverick, McCain-type centrist legislator. So yeah. I do think yeah. that that is her strategy. Maybe Although it's she, wrong. Maybe it's flawed. I think that she has more of a chance to get reelected than her counterpart does. Uh, the other senator from Mark um, Kelly. Arizona. Mark Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. 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 Look, I think she I've heard that she's actually going to be running for POTUS um, on the Republican ticket, potentially, maybe as an independent. I've heard that. That's, you know, she might be crazy enough to do it. And that, that would be a good, <laughs> an interesting move. I don't think she's going to win the senator, but she could run for POTUS. I think she thinks she's a maverick and she's going to pull on um, or she's going to pull a lot of Republican support the way that John McCain got a lot of Democrats uh, to, to support him over the course of his long career because he was a maverick. Uh, the thing is, she just comes off as nutty and crazy. Uh, and I don't think that she they have that sort of uh, emotional attachment to her. Republicans like her just because uh, she's pissing off Democrats. And I don't know if that's a good enough reason or that really has affection with deep roots and that type of loyalty from voters that she thinks she's going to have. I think she's nuts. Manchin on the other side, um, if I can indulge you a little bit of my West Virginia history here. I went to school in West Virginia and I owned um, vacation property in West Virginia for, for many years. And uh, from age 14 on, grew up just a few miles from the state line. I'm very familiar with the state. We had a mansion cousin as one of my sorority sisters when I was in college. (laughs) Now, the mansion name is only a big deal in West Virginia because of A. James Mansion, who held several positions, you know, in the state. And he was quite the character. And if your name is Mansion, you're going to get elected in West Virginia. West Virginia is a backward state and very poor, and they don't even have access to internet everywhere. Uh, And so you reach voters there in a different way. I've argued for people, they need to go radio, 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 because they're not on Twitter. You know, it's just very different. The state is poor. And I privately, Zeb, I've shared with you some of my experiences with it, where where I know this is poorer than people realize. And they're not sophisticated, and they don't know what BBB is. They don't know a lot. Uh, By and large, there would be a lower percentage of voters in West Virginia that are familiar or aware of the controversy surrounding Manchin than there would be, say, if he was a senator from another state. I'm going to get a lot of blowback from that, but it is true. Not the entire state. You know, there's Charleston and there's other, and, you know, Martinsburg, which is closer towards, you know, Washington, D.C., but that is the state. And um, as long as you can keep them poor and stupid, they'll vote for you. And I think that's what Joe Manchin wants to do. And that's why he's not doing what needs to be done to help the people of West Virginia. He, I mean, do they really think that coal is coming back? It's not. So he wants people to be poor and stupid. The late uh, Robert Byrd, former KKK, <laughs> I think he was you know, leader, he at least he saw that coal was not sustainable that the state had to find other ways to to have an economy and jobs. And so he brought a 
ton of infrastructure money in. I mean, and then they named everything after him. You can't swing a dead cat in West Virginia without, you know, hitting something named after Bird. Uh, and the CIA, you know, one of their headquarters or one of their offshoots is, is there. Uh, so, you know, Senator Byrd did what he could to try and bring a different type of economy to the state. And Joe Manchin doesn't do that. Joe Manchin is in it um, because his last name is Manchin. He's going to get elected to anything no matter what he does. And the people of West Virginia are not aware of the details of everything in the recent controversy uh, the way we are. And that's the bottom line. Such an interesting point about climate change. Manchin has become sort of the symbol around the world. The Guardian had an article about this. You know, he's the symbol of uh, the climate change deniers. And he comes from a state that could benefit so much from all the climate change money that was in that legislation. It seems stunning to me that he's the guy who's turning it all down when he's got a population there who could really get all, get a lot of use out of those jobs, out of those climate change jobs that are coming, you know, through these various bills. Mike, what's your take on that kind of strategy of just being so unaware of what, what will help the population of, of West Virginia? So to be clear, your theory of Manchin is that he's consciously immiserating his own constituents for his own benefit. That's what he's trying to do. I, I would agree with that, Sherry. I think it's what you were saying, right? Because he can. But if you yeah. look up the I mean, he can do whatever money, he wants uh, if, yeah. if it puts money. But per capita, he brings back so much federal money to the state that would seem to cut against that allegation. I think he's, it's not just that his last name is Manchin. He's, I don't know if you want to say beloved. He's a highly successful politician. He's a former governor. He's held every role. He's one of the most well-known figures in the state. You're right. They always come in 47th or 49th in literacy levels. And it's a state with a huge, huge number of challenges. But you don't think the Maserati was a bit of a giveaway? You know, he's driving around in a Maserati, lives on this <laughs> yacht. Uh, you know, it just does nothing about his lifestyle indicates that he's a man of the people. And then he's got a family that's tied to the coal industry. So not to mention that his daughter is involved in pharma. I mean, there's a lot of questions around this guy. And I think just looking at his lifestyle, boy, that does not look like a public servant to me. A houseboat? You think most people in West Virginia don't live on houseboats? It's not the houseboat. It's a yacht. It qualifies as a yacht. Um, and it's sitting there in that uh, harbor in D.C. and costs a fortune, obviously, to buy one of those things. And uh, where did he get the money for all of this if he's such a public servant? You know, it seems to me you know, he's on the take. And when we looked at that story, we, I don't know if you saw it this week on Narrative, there is a lot of money coming into his coffers and into Kirsten Sinema's coffers from GOP funders. Not funders that have ever, ever funded anyone from the Democratic Party, but actual, you know, big time donors from the GOP that are pouring money into cinema and uh, Manchin's campaign. I mean, it's well, clear. That makes sense to me. Well, he's blocking the Democrats' agenda. So right, they like it, that. But nothing it's, about that what, says what that he's looking after the, the interests of the people. Flow. Yeah, I would think that while it's not my definition of what a senator should be doing, that the game theory of why does he take the votes that he does regarding coal is because he perceives that the coal interests in his state, the workers and coal mines want him to take that vote. They, most of the coal unions are with him, although they broke a little bit on the BBB bill. I don't know that it's uh, personal corruption as much as it is differently aligned incentives for a Democrat in, by some measures, the most Republican state in America. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Sherry? Well, I only heard part of that because I lost you guys there for a while. But um, I think that the state has definitely shifted. And I don't know what the dynamic is behind that over the last years because it was solid blue, what, 20 years ago at least, or maybe more recently. But Manchin can do whatever he wants, and he's going to get reelected. So if there's influence and money behind it, you know, like the coal miners union, coal workers union, that has impact. And that was a little bit surprising when they came out against him like that. But for the most part, when I mean, you can't really see the full picture, you have to look at somebody who's going to get reelected uh, no matter what he does. He's not necessarily the most ethical guy. So I'm going to take the stance that I'm going to lean more on there's something in it for him personally or his family and his decision making will be based on that. And if by some chance, sometimes it looks like it's helping the people of West Virginia, well, that's fine too, but that's not what drives him. Yeah, that's interesting. I just to go back on his lifestyle choices there a little bit, just because I like videos and pictures. Let's take a look at this. This is his uh, so-called houseboat. By all accounts, 
is a full-on yacht by the definitions. And it's also, you know, his history here in terms of being influenced by the fossil fuel industry. Not only does he have the family investments in coal and fossil fuels, he also takes these regular Zoom calls with billionaires and people from the energy industry and has weekly huddles with Exxon. Exxon are the people who, who influence him on a weekly basis. I mean, it's clear to me that he is not representing the interests of the people of West Virginia. And in her case, I don't know what she's on about, but, you know, there's a lot of money sloshing around in her campaign that shouldn't be there. She raised $2.6 million this last nine months in a non-election year. Normally, she raised last year, she'd raised $1 million for the same period. So where's this $1.5 million coming from? Coming from GOP donors who are pouring money into her campaign. And it's troubling, of course, that we have these two Democrats that are there basically as opposition to the rest of the party and paid for by the Republican Party. It's almost like we have a 52 uh, Republican Party Senate. It's exactly what well, it is. So our only choice is to elect more Democrats to the Senate. Right. So why blame Manchin? Why not blame Cal Cunningham? Why not blame Senate candidates who blew it and made Manchin and Cinema the pivot points? Well, I mean, you could blame a lot of people, but they're the ones taking the votes and taking the money. So, you know, it's tough. I get that they, you know, politicians can be corrupt. This is the reality of the situation. There's a lot of money sloshing around. But I do think the Republicans have taken it to a whole new level. I mean, I don't think they, they're playing by the rules at all anymore. They don't accept that they're in a democracy. They don't accept the rules of democracy. And they don't accept the power of the legislature. So that's why we're seeing this. That's why we're seeing so much corruption throughout the GOP. It's been there for a while, and I wasn't even aware to the degree to which the Federalist Society and you know Leonard Leo, with yeah, what he it. was doing and the money that he was getting and who was funding him. I mean, George and Kellyanne Conway gave him a mm. lot of money. And so the era of Trump forced a lot of us to look at things that we hadn't looked at before that we didn't, you know, you hear these names, you kind of know about it, but I didn't, I, you know, I was involved in Republican politics all those years, worked in it, but I was not aware to the degree to which these people controlled everything. You know, you heard mm. about the Koch brothers, but there was other stuff floating around there and a lot of this stuff building very quietly in the background that unless you were part of that real hardcore group with that passionate agenda, you just thought, well, we were all Republicans and fiscal conservatives and maybe defense hawks a little bit and not aware of this far right, you know, some of the Opus Day stuff and some of the things now that have come to light. So I think that a lot of the corruption has always been there or at least building and now it's just out in the open. Now it's mainstream within the party. And no one cares. Even the media doesn't seem to care. They don't cover it um, at all. It's just sort it's of, we've crazy. normalized it. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to something else, because I uh, it all touches on race. And of course, race, I think, is the underlining issue of so much here. But I made the decision last night to take Narrative's podcast off Spotify, partly because of what you know Neil Young was saying, but partly because... You know, and I don't have anything against Joe Rogan. And I don't have anything against Spotify. I love Spotify. My relationship with them is great, and and we have a very good connection. I, I'm just kind of tired of all these propaganda outlets in our country that we now have. You know, whether it's Fox News, Facebook, Joe Rogan, you name it. There's just a lot of foreign propaganda that's dressed up as facts, dressed up as news. OAN, Newsmax, you throw all of those into it that are really designed as instruments of war. I mean, there's no other way to describe these things. They're designed to f divide our country, to polarize our country, and they're targeted directly at the people of the United States in a way that is so pernicious and damaging to our country that we cannot continue to allow these people to broadcast their messages into here. And you might say, hey, Joe Rogan's an independent guy making his own decisions, but he is sounding a lot like a Russian talking point. You know, he's sounding a lot like Tucker Carlson. There is some sort of coordination going on between what the right wing is feeding America. And that information and those talking points seem to be coming from outside of this country a lot of the time. They seem to be coming from Russia. And so that's very troubling to have all these influential people on broadcasters systems like Spotify, and it is a broadcasting system, and no regulation, no one's stopping them, no one's doing anything. You know, I don't think Fox News should be on the air anymore. I don't think Newsmax should be on the air anymore. And I certainly don't think that Joe Rogan should be allowed to continue to say things that are basically damaging people's lives. And we're not talking about real lives that are being lost because of the coronavirus and the vaccine 
debate. And I think that's a really important issue that we can't just let go. So I know I'm just a tiny voice, but I'd rather get Spotify to start making this debate become something much bigger, that we finally take on these propaganda outlets that are really polluting American minds uh, with all this propaganda. So that's my take on that. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Am I being crazy? Let's drill down a little further. You think Joe Rogan is a propagandist in the same way the OAN network is propagandists? I mean, you know, there's always levels of are they doing it intentionally? Are they unwittingly doing it? I don't know. But there is a lot of nonsense that comes out of that guy. And I'm tired of it. And I think Americans' are, lives are being lost because of it. Everyone has a right to say whatever they want. Of course, we have that First Amendment. But not everyone has a right to pollute the minds of everybody in America with a bunch of lies. Everyone has the right to say what they want, but then you just described a certain form of speech that shouldn't enjoy the protections of speech. I mean, that's well, why you have the protections of speech for those difficult cases. You have protections of speech, but you don't have a right to, you know, you can't, you can't walk into a, a cinema and yell fire, fire, fire if there's no fire. You know, you'll get arrested, you get thrown in jail. Why <laughs> are you sure, allowed to? just saying we should fire cinema. But why are you allowed to do that in... Uh, in the media? Why are you allowed to decide you're going to broadcast a complete lie that is going to inflame tensions, that is going to create conflict, let people die, uh, have people make the wrong decisions about their lives? Why are you allowed to do that in media? Sh that There's no right to say, hey, everyone can have their own TV channel. That isn't in the Constitution. But there literally is a right to say that if there's no, um, since Fox News and OAN are on cable, there's no means for the government to regulate them. Like, that's what the First Amendment right is, that you can't, I mean, there, yes, if they were to engage in libel, if they were to call people to attack, that would be one thing. But yeah, these are the tough cases that make us think about what free speech is. I think Rogan's in a different category. I think OAN is in its own category. And then I think Fox is close, especially now that they purged, you know, Starwalt and Wallace and all the people mm -hmm. who, Shep Smith, who were kind of being regular thinkers on that. Uh oh, I've lost you too, Mike. <laughs> Sorry about that, everyone. It happens every once in a while. Sometimes I get suspicious that it's a uh you know, bad people in my system. Uh, so I guess it's just us. I'm going to take some comments from people online and we'll definitely get Mike and uh, Sherry back if they want to reconnect. We'll be glad to uh, talk to them when they do that. In the meantime, let's take a look at what people are saying online. So I'm surprised, says Karen, that there are still people surprised to hear that politicians disenfranchise voters in a variety of depressing ways, including illness, lack of education and resources. It is a little bit surprising. And then there is, what is this from Marie? She's saying, and the kind of trolls who defend Rogan on Twitter. There are many trolls who defend Rogan on Twitter, but that's just the nature of this conversation. Hey, Mike, are you back now? I am back. Okay. I, heard, I heard you reading some of the okay. comments. Yeah. yeah. So someone's saying, that, is the right to, to speak to the same as the right yeah. to broadcast? Is the other comment here? No, sure. there is no right to broadcast. It's right. it's a contractual right, and Spotify is you know paid Rogan I don't know upwards of however many millions, hundreds yeah. of millions of yeah. dollars, and so that's why off. What I was saying is, I think it's Neil Young and your right to say if I'm invited to play on a concert bill and I don't like the other artists on the bill, I could withhold my services. Right? It's a right of disassociation. I say go for it if you're Neil Young, and he knew full full well when he said it's either him or me that they were going to choose him. Mm -hmm. However, I think to take one step back, there is another virtue, and that is what are we to do? Are we to evaluate the speech and opinions of everyone and then open ourselves up for boycott? Because you know Neil Young in 2015 had an album about Monsanto, and he had many good points in it, but he also blamed pesticides for autism and spread inaccuracies. In fact, doing the same sort of thing that Joe Rogan does, though to less of an audience in one lyric at a time, not one show at a time. Well, that's so, the thing I think we're missing. I think we're missing the fact that we are in a war. You know, China and Russia have been impacting an American mind through a disinformation war that is clear and obvious, you know, if you're studying these things, that this is what's going on in America. There is a lot of information propaganda being inflicted on American minds on purpose in order to destroy this country, to destroy democracy, to polarize us, to put us in positions of extreme hatred towards each other. And it's working. We see it every single day. So this is not normal times. If this was normal times, 
absolutely. Joe Rogan can go and say what he wants. But we're in a position now where we're at war, and that's an information war. So, you know, if these were missiles, if these were nuclear bombs that were being flung at our cities, we'd be horrified if the government didn't do anything. You know, people would be dying, but we'd be like, oh, well, sorry, people have a right to bomb. People don't have a right to bomb. This is the same thing as saying these people have a right to bomb because these are information nukes, basically. They're being targeted in America in a way that is destroying lives, literally destroying lives. No, there's a great difference, I think, between actual weapons and the analogy of words as weapons, the idea of words as harm, and they can. But in this case, while Rogan has certainly said some things, and he has this way of saying, he will say, I'm a moron, I'm just asking questions out loud. But yeah, a lot of information has gone to his audience that is misinformation. I do also think it's extremely important. We could, every time rights are suspended or proposed to be suspended, habeas corpus or internment of the Japanese, it's always because it is, quote, a crisis situation. I think that we are up against- I'm not arguing any, any rights to be suspended. No rights should be suspended. These people who are on these private broadcasters, private broadcasting systems should not be on those systems. That's what I'm saying. And that's not, it's a business decision. It's a business decision that we can impact as consumers and as broadcasters. And it's a business decision the government can impact as well. You know, there's nothing wrong with uh, President Biden calling up the head of Spotify and saying, dude, you know, your, your broadcasters are kind of disturbing the national interest, are a threat to Americans, are killing Americans. You should uh, reconsider having them on the air. That's perfectly okay. Politicians could do the same thing. No one is saying take away anyone's rights, but it's the responsibility of these um, operations, which are making millions and millions of money, often for foreign owners, to do something. And if they're not going to, we have to do something as consumers, uh, as broadcasters, or we're going to lose this war. We are in the middle of a massive war on democracy. Spotify's foreign owner is a Swede. That is true. I think there is something wrong with President Biden calling up Spotify and saying, silence Joe Rogan if the shoe was on the other foot. And if Trump did that to MSNBC, I guess he'd be laughed off the phone. But it would be a bad thing. It would be improper. I mean, Trump did that all the time. Trump did that every day. I know, day. it was improper. And I said yeah, it was yeah, wrong, so I'd be yeah. a hypocrite but, if uh, yeah. I agree to a hypothetical that Biden was wrong. I think that, like I said, Neil Young got it wrong when it came to pesticide. He introduced so-called experts who now are vaccine deniers. He didn't do it every day. He didn't do it as, you know, on four hours a day to hundreds of millions of people. But everyone has the sin. Everyone who's spoken in the public stage has committed the sin of getting things wrong. And so I do think it's much more chilling to take away the speaker than to try to work within the system to get the listener, you're saying maybe we shouldn't give them our money, to get the listener to be discerning enough that they don't take their vaccine advice from Joe Rogan. Yeah, but look, it's not just Joe Rogan. If it was just Joe Rogan, it'd be fine. These same talking points, this whole disinformation system that brought us everything from QAnon to Jan 6 to the vaccine crisis we're having right now, all these things are coordinated by this unknown group of either, you know, really rich American billionaires known as the, you know, the Council for National Policy or the Federalist Society in some cases and foreign governments. I mean, this is not, you know, Joe Rogan waking up and saying, hey, look, I did my research. It's all independent research. Vaccines suck. That would be one thing. But this is a coordinated system across our entire uh, ecosystem of right wing media that is poisoning the minds of Americans to the point where they no longer believe that truth is true. There, if you think that it is Russians causing the spate of vaccine denialism or uh, skepticism, you're wrong. It predates the Russians. What the Russians like to do, what anyone involved in disinformation likes to do, is to find the pressure points, the wedge points, and put in their wedge and try to cause division. And so that's one of the areas. But the fact is, the pressure point predated any Russian involvement. Before there was a cozy bear or a fancy bear, Americans believed in wild theories, you know, from cult to Mormonism, to gold bugs. This is a, f- a feature of America, not uniquely so, but more so than most other advanced nations. We're a country of 330 million. A whole lot of them are skeptical of vaccines. Before the Russians got involved, a very left-wing Kennedy was one of the most famous propagators of that disinformation. So I don't think that blaming the boogeyman is the right way to look at it. You know, we've seen the enemy and he is us. I think the fault is in our stars. It's not about billionaires and Russians. uh, You know what? I disagree with you. I think the Russians are heavily involved in a massive propaganda effort. The Chinese are massively involved in a massive propaganda effort in the United States using all the freedoms and liberties. 
they they were there right the origins of the vaccines of the anti-vaccine movement originated also as well with a lot of russian influence look these guys have been at it for a decade you know the russians and the and the chinese have a very different uh, point of view or a, or a sort of timeline that they look at they've been doing this for a long time they know that in order to pollute the american brains they would need to do it over, over generations and they did do it over generations so that's how we got to donald trump in the office and when we got donald trump in office all gloves came off i mean look what he did to our society in four years and the idea that it's not supported by russia is ludicrous i mean there's just too much information out there to back it up i i did not say it was not supported by russia i said that even if the russians weren't doing it we'd be in almost the exact same place the russians it's the causal arrow that i think you might have backwards it's not that the russians caused this and americans turned nuts when it came to vaccines it's that americans were nuts uh, when it came to vaccines and the russian says ah that's the pressure point to try to activate. I think it's even started early. If you look at the, at the Council for National Policy and the way the Russians were involved in setting that up, even if you look at the amount of influence the Russians have in the Koch family, because this goes back a long, long way. And I think the Russians have been actively trying to destroy America for a, a long, long time. You know, this is not surprising, shouldn't be surprising to anybody. So, you know, did the Cold War when it ended end their animosity to America? No, it didn't. It actually allowed them a way in to attack our liberty. And so here they are using propaganda and all these means to attack all these freedoms that we allow ourselves in, in America. They're taking those very things, they're poisoning them, creating conflict in there, and then turning it into cancer within our society. We really are eating ourselves from the inside out and it's destroying everything that we stand for. And I think in these special times, we deserve to do some special actions or we need to take some special actions. And some of those need to be that we need to take these portals of propaganda off the airwaves. So how would that work in the case of Fox? They are the most successful cable broadcaster. They have contracts with cable systems that everyone's making money from it and people want to watch them. So what does it mean to take them off the air? Who does? Well, I think we need to be careful about what we call news. I don't think they're news. And I think we need to classify okay. these networks that aren't news. If they're just sort of opinion networks, then they shouldn't be allowed to be in the basic cable tier that so many uh, cable companies put them in. I think like a fix like that would be just one major fix. The numbers that they're allocated on the dial are often way too high for a, an opinion network. They get them because they're a news network. Plus, we forget that the airwaves in this country are a public trust. They belong to us as a public, not necessarily the ones on the internet, but the ones that we broadcast over with transmitters and, and those kinds of things. And in that case, I think we can absolutely argue that the public needs to get it, its airwaves back. They're misusing it to propagate a lot of lies that is harming society. You know, every local TV station, the transmitters that those uh, TV stations broadcast, uh, the, the frequency they're broadcasting on, belongs to the people of that city or that area. They should claim back their TV stations. They should put a, a, you know, a request in to say, take Fox News or Fox local TV off the airwaves because we want to get our, uh, our TV stations back and provide local service. They're contravening their promise to that community. But you're proposing a populist solution where the popular will is on the other side of what you are, where you are. You know, Fox News is very popular but among viewers. News. But it's not news. Okay. It's, it's a disinformation and propaganda uh, vehicle. It's a weapon of mass disinformation. That's what Fox News is. It's designed to destroy America. And we're letting it. I mean, we're just letting it. Right. But the means of when I asked you, what is the means of attacking this? It is true. We can label it or you and I and people like minded people can label it differently than the word news. But I just don't see the mechanism by which there's no airwaves to take Fox News channel cable channel off of. You know, right. there's a contract with cable providers. They have those high numbers on cable systems because the cable providers want their customers to be able to find one of the most popular channels. Again, the fault is with us. The fault's in our stars. But we can also tell the regulators, there are regulators of cable, to say that, you know, non-news channels shouldn't be afforded basic cable if they're opinion channels like that, where they're demonstrably showing, providing lies and fake news to the population. You know, we don't have Russian TV anymore, Russian Today. Is that still on TV? Maybe it is. Uh, but, you know, DirecTV just took off OAN. That's a TV network run by the Moonies. The Moonies have a TV network in this country. Why do the Moonies have a TV network in this country? It makes no sense. What is Newsmax? Who pays for Newsmax? You know, do we need Israeli disinformation services all over the United States? CNN is basically, you know, influenced heavily by the Israelis. You've got Fox News 
influenced by Rupert Murdoch, whoever his allegiance is to. And you've got OAN, which is the uh, Moonies, and then you know, Newsmax, which also seem to be Israeli tele- uh, influence. Where is the American TV network? There is not a single American, a pro-American TV network on the air anymore. They're just all influenced by foreign governments. Yeah. So the Moonies own OAN? Basically, it's a slightly convoluted because they own Washington Times and the Washington right. Times has an agreement with OAN. And, and basically, that's the origins of, of how they, uh, they have a huge interest in OAN. I mean, mm. you know, they have the Washington Times. That's a fairly decent, not decent, but a big size newspaper. In Established. DC. Yeah, right. yeah. They have a staff. They have resources. I just think that the alternative that you're positing rests on huge opinion swells against Fox. And if there were huge opinion swells, if there was the will of the people to tell Fox, we don't want you anymore, there wouldn't be the problem. And the problem is that Fox has all this influence because people like them. Because they're under the spell of this you know, cult-like news service that is telling them a bunch of lies. And What's the difference between people under a spell and, quote, the will of the voters, except for a little bit of spin that we as the observer put on? Well, we've got the entire, you know, half the population of the United States uh, believing that Biden is not the president of the United States. That's not true. But half the population, maybe even more, believe that that's the case. That only happens because a lot of people are telling them a lot of lies. You take away the liars, you won't have so many people believing that lie. And right now, now, our American population is being kept captive by these news organizations that are lying to them on a daily basis. Of course, they believe that Biden isn't the president because that's what they're being told by the people they have trusted all along. That needs to change. You know, if we saw any captive situation, we saw a bunch of people being held hostage, we'd go in there and we'd remove the hostage takers. We should do exactly the same and free the American people that are being held hostage by this propaganda. Yes, if we saw a hostage being held hostage, we do something. If we saw a nuclear attack, we do something. But the actual facts aren't that they're not these extreme analogies. I mean, what it is, is that people aren't brainwashed. They have different opinions that I certainly disagree with. And it's not as easy as to say that someone somewhere, the smart, right thinking people have identified the people with the wrong opinions. And therefore, we have to get in between the origin source of their opinions and how people have found it's, their opinions. It's just not opinions, though. It's facts. We know that Biden won the election. It's not that's a fact. A, it's that's not a fact. A fact. That, that is a fact. He won a, the election. Of course, that's a fact. It's not a fact that half the people don't think it's a fact. It, it's it, a well, fact it, that it, a majority it, of the Republican party. The latest, polling, the latest polling shows that 80% of, of Republicans don't believe that Biden is the president. I mean, why don't they right, believe that's it? that's not half the country. Well, it's a 40% of the country, but why don't they believe it? They right, don't believe, they don't it, believe because, it because that's how the big lie works. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's why it's called the big lie and not the yeah. unsuccessful lie. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Sherry, can you hear us again? I don't know if you can. If you want to jump in there, I don't know if you've been able to monitor. Yeah, this. here and there. Then you leave yeah. me and then <laughs> I'm going to blame the snowstorm. Oh, yeah, of course. There, there is a giant snowstorm. Have you heard any of that? Of that, our, I, you know, I, I strongly believe that uh, we yeah, have to take heard, some action I heard, against I heard this. a good bit of that. Um, mm. Yeah, I think that the problem is that we're normalizing the lying. There has to be, this isn't just differences of opinion. Fox News lies. Uh, You know, we got the guys on Newsmax that are lying. And there has to be penalties for that, big penalties. Uh, And that's where I think the rubber meets the road because the viewers don't know they're being lied to. So these are not just differences of opinion. It's just not true. I spent many years and thousands of appearances on Fox as well as the other networks. And I know about the time when it switched from being uh, mere opinion to out and out lies. And in the era of Trump, they are now out and out lying to people. So I don't know if there's some board that, you know, punishes them or maybe the courts have to be uh, a little bit more clear on the difference between free speech and just, you know, defaming people. I've been defamed by Trump and um, it's just a little bit too easy to do that. So freedom of speech, I think it's a real gray area. Freedom of speech does not mean lying to people. And I think there has to be big penalties when you have this great responsibility of being you know, a cable network or a network so-called news organization. So I think we need some big, huge lawsuits. 
and I don't know how you change it with the courts or how you change the laws, but something needs to give on this because it's not a difference of opinion. And we know that it is out and out lying. And the vast majority of these people who believe that Joe Biden is not their president have been lied to. That's not an opinion. They don't have a different opinion. They are being being lied to. They have this opinion because Fox News and some of the other right-wing uh, media outlets are lying to them. And at this point in time, we don't have any real penalties for that uh, that have any teeth, and then that can stop the lying. Yeah. I mean, look, Tucker Carlson was supporting the Russians uh, in Ukraine. That was the latest t- talking point out of Fox News. I mean, you know, when that happens, you've lost the case. Hey, we've got to wrap up because we're taking so long. But This has been a great show. Um, Marie wants to know, is Mike a contrarian? Mike, are you a contrarian? I'm not a contrarian. I'm someone with who has my own ideas, and I will always bounce them off the people I'm talking to. I don't take the opposite side just for sport. So I would say this, if we were in a show where we were all agreeing and the host said, sure, the Russians are a malevolent force, but I don't think that they're so important in terms of shaping the opinions of America, I would say, yeah, I happen to agree with you. All right. And Julio says, public warning saying is, it is an opinion station at the beginning of each show. So they're saying, put it like cigarettes cause cancer, they should say at the beginning of each show, this is an opinion, not a new show. Do you think that will help? I could see another government doing that with Fox. I just don't see practically America doing that and labeling it as opinion. And also let's note that Fox and Murdoch always retreats to the idea that their primetime block, you know, 7 to 11 is opinion. So I don't know what would rebut the the disinformation if that's exactly what Fox has always said to excuse itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen is saying it's a big lie, I think, instead of a little lie because of a fire hose of misinformation being shot at the public from rush on down. This is true, um, Sherry, of course, of the ecosystem there. Yes, of course, it's true. And we also have Fox, even if they're not not, not lying, they're withholding key information from viewers uh, so that to shape their worldview. But I don't think there's anything wrong with having a disclaimer, requiring a disclaimer at the beginning of these shows or that you have to say certain words that show that this is opinion, this is not news. Uh, Because I don't think viewers necessarily know or care and you have to remind them. Uh, And I think that might, I don't know if it solves a problem, but it at least starts drawing that line in the sand that I think we need to have it drawn in the sand. And uh, that might, Right off the bat, I don't know how that would work in terms of the courts if someone's being sued for libel or defamation, but it might clarify it a little bit. It might mean that the opinion hosts can get away with saying things that you can't say as part of a news broadcast. And it might clarify what some of these shows are. Is Fox and Friends news or is it opinion? Mm. So it kind of forces Uh, If there were those types of requirements that might force the executives of the cable news stations and and others to figure out how to finesse that, but so that it's clarified. So if you're going to have a news segment as part of Fox and Friends, you very specifically say, okay, like, like we're going to break for news, like in the middle of a, you know, like an hour along, you know, you hear radio uh, disc jockeys, and then they have 10 minutes of news. So it might be something like that. But I think we do need some sort of clarity in that regard so that people don't confuse Sean Hannity, you know, with say a Wolf Blitzer. Mm -hmm. I'd even say Wolf Blitzer is opinion some of the time, you know, the, uh, this is an important conversation we're having. I'm glad we're having it. And I hope more people take this action of taking a stand against Spotify, not because we hate Spotify, but because Spotify is more likely to do something than Fox news is going to do something. So, you know, we have to get this conversation going. And for me, that starts with, each of us as consumers deciding if we want to give Spotify 10 bucks a month, if they're going to allow people like Joe Rogan to lie about vaccinations or anything else that they choose to lie about when people are really dying. I mean, this is, this is about life and death. We've got people dying every day from coronavirus, though, and almost 800,000 people dead since the start. So, you know, we're not talking about something trivial here. We're ultimately talking about a life and death issue. So I hope uh, others take a full go at, at, uh, at either stopping their subscriptions or taking their content off of Spotify. That's my point of view. That's an opinion. Um, so, um, Mike, any last thoughts? People need to find you because you have a, I think, a contrarian-ish podcast in the gist. Um, it's a really terrific podcast. If you're looking for alternative, not even alternative points, if you're looking for good debates about real issues, this is the place to go. So, Mike, tell everyone where they can find your podcast. 
Well, I guess they say wherever uh, fine podcasts are served, like Apple or Spotify or mm-hmm. Google Podcasts, all over the place, all the podcasts. Just look for The Gist with Mike Pesca. Right. So it's uh, G-I-S-T, if people are wondering. Thank you. It. Yes. <laughs> and uh, on, online, on Twitter, where can they find you on Twitter and uh, where can they find the podcast on Twitter? Uh, at Pesca Gist or at Pesca M-I, which are the first two letters of Mike. Pesca okay. me, I guess you okay. would say it like that. Uh, I read Piscami. I was like, so Italian. Piscami. Hey. <laughs> Piscami. <laughs> Sherry, how can people find you and what and anything you don't want to promote, feel free to. Uh, well, no, at this point, you find me on Twitter as Sherry Jacobus. Um, if you want to see some of my old stuff, uh, including my old podcast, you know, as I said last time I was on here, I stopped doing that a year ago when I got uh, diagnosed with cancer. So I've been dealing mostly with that for the past year. I do have something coming up starting in March. I'm not going to announce it yet, just uh, starting to get into some projects. But at Sherry Jacobus. Uh, on Twitter and SherryJacobus.com is my website. All right. Well, thank you both for being here tonight on the After Show. It's been a great conversation. Uh, well, hopefully we'll have it a- another one with you guys both in the future. I look forward to that. Uh, and I hope you have a good weekend because it's here finally. That's a good thing after all. Have a good night, everybody. Yeah.